Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to John 8. John 8 in your Bibles. We are finishing John 8 this evening. I've been walking sequentially through it for a few weeks now. This will be our third message in, in John 8 as we walk through the book of John. It's been a day of discipleship. It's been a day of learning of discipleship. It's been a day where we have been focusing on uh, principles of discipleship. Uh, we focused on them in Sunday school as we talked through 2 Peter 1 again, uh, 5 through 10, and, and looked into the understanding of some of those questions that we had in regard to the Word of God uh, in the memory work that we had for this past um, session in Sunday school. Then we talked in Job this morning, and in Job we uh, recognized Eliphaz, though he had some rough things to say as well, some things that were fairly inaccurate. Uh, one of the things that he got right was this idea that vanity is the recompense of vanity. And so we springboarded off of that to talk about that sowing and reaping principle that Eliphaz also brought up in Job 4 and 5, and how discipleship is really what is at stake with the principle of sowing and reaping. Well, this evening, we're going to kind of give a well-rounded finish to a day where we've been considering discipleship. You know, the old saying goes, Rome was not built in a day. When somebody says that, when somebody says Rome was not built in a day, they are attempting to communicate the reality that some things take time and perseverance to be brought to maturity and completion. Rome was a beautiful city in its day. It was a city that had amazing architecture, beautiful extravagance. It was uh, a, a leading technological marvel of its day with the way in which uh, it had running water and plumbing and some of these things that we would not even thought of for, for uh, hundreds and thousands of years as being uh, truly applicable to society and culture. And yet Rome was not built in a day. It took time. It took effort. It took perseverance. It took leadership to get Rome to the place where it was what it was at the height of its glory and its power. In much the same way, in our society, Lord, large corporations do not just appear, do they? You don't just wake up one morning, look at the stock report, and find a corporation that was started the day before at the top of the list as if it just magically appeared and became powerful and productive. Ministries do not start off immediately as large and influential. These corporations and these ministries and, and all of uh, every entity that we see in this life is grown, grown through leadership, grown through direction, through persistence. In much the same way, ladies and gentlemen, godliness in our lives does not happen overnight. Godliness is grown in us through time, through effort, and through obedience. A godly man or a godly woman is not developed overnight. Today, through the teaching of Jesus Christ in John 8, we're going to look at some principles of discipleship. Now, as we do so, we are going to see that discipleship is not specifically about what you are doing at any given moment in time, but rather about what you are doing in regards to the very way that you live your life. Anyone can do godly things for a day. Discipleship is about a godly lifestyle. 
And so we're going to look at three lessons this evening, three lessons that are foundational to a life of discipleship in Christ. Three lessons that are foundational to a life of discipleship in Christ. And as we do so, we'll pick up in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And our first point, you, if you have an outline, you're going to see a first point there. I would actually like you to modify this first point. As I was looking through it again today, praying about it, I, I, I write these sermons in advance and, and I look at them and I pray about them. And sometimes as I'm preaching them over in my mind, uh, the Lord uh, impresses upon me to alter something. And so I'm going to alter what this first point says. You have in your notes, discipleship is about the journey, not just the beginning. I'd like us to, to, to change that just a little bit. Discipleship is a lifestyle, not just an action, is what I'd like you at that first point to read. Discipleship is a lifestyle, not just an action. Look with me. We'll pick up in uh, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Then answered, or excuse me, they answered him, We be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father. And ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto him, unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me. A man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Discipleship is a lifestyle, not an action. Let's consider the setting in which we find ourselves. We have been uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles for some time now. We recall in, at the end of uh, John chapter 7 was the last day, the great day in the Feast of Tabernacles. So we are either on that great day still or we have, are just beyond that great day, though Jesus Christ has not yet left the city of Jerusalem. It's been a busy feast for Jesus Christ since he got into Jerusalem. He debated with the men in the, te in the temple about the Sabbath. You recall that. They were talking about the Sabbath and Jesus Christ mentioned that the Pharisees do not judge righteous judgments. That was hearkening back perhaps to what they had done, what they had seen Jesus do at the last Feast of Tabernacles with the healing of the man with the infirmity for 38 years. Then he contended with the Jews about the woman taken in adultery. We, we, we remember that from John 8, 1 through 11. The woman taken in adultery, Jesus Christ contends with them and they end up leaving her alone and leaving him alone in that regard. And then last week we talked about how Jesus Christ declared his authority, but also clearly demonstrated his authority. And we talked about the authority of Jesus Christ a little bit last week. All of this has happened in, in one feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And as a matter of fact, most of this has been happening since the great day of the feast, that last day of the feast, uh, which we will be memorizing that day and that month in our Sunday school hour. So you can look forward to knowing what the date 
and the day would, have, would be for the last day of the feast here in the coming weeks and months. Now, having contended with many unbelievers, Jesus does something that we have not seen very much in the book of John. In the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke, in those earlier chapters, we see Jesus Christ speaking a little bit more and we see more of his interaction with believers. But in the book of John, a book which is focused on two interrelated themes, two, two, not, not two, four, uh, two interrelated themes, we, we have talked about these themes and we've seen them run throughout. Belief and unbelief. Now, there is coming a point where Jesus Christ will be speaking almost exclusively with believers. That's coming up later in, in the book of John. But right now, he has been interacting mostly with unbelievers. But he takes a pause from interacting with unbelievers for really just three verses here to interact with those who believed on him. Verse 30, we saw it says that as he spake these words, many believed on him. And so Jesus Christ is speaking to a group of believers here. I would think that perhaps this group of believers had the man that had been healed of the infirmity for 38 years. Perhaps this group of believers had the woman who had been taken in adultery. Regardless, these were those that had heard Jesus Christ teaching and were convinced in their heart that he was, in fact, Messiah. Now, there's not just believers standing around. We'll see that in a moment. There are unbelievers there as well. But Jesus specifically turns his direction to those who have believed on him. And he speaks to them. Jesus tells them in verse 31 that if they truly want to be his disciples, they were not simply to believe Jesus' words, but to continue in Jesus' words. Look at verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now, Jesus Christ is not telling them that if they don't continue, if they don't persevere, then they will lose their salvation. That is not at all what Jesus Christ is talking about here. He is talking to those who are already believers, not about salvation, but about discipleship, about sanctification. We made that clarification this morning in Sunday school, and we, were, we are going to continue to see that as we look more and more in the weeks to come about this, this reality of discipleship, that Jesus Christ is talking about discipleship, not about salvation. The word continue here in the Greek is a word which literally means to abide. It's the same word that we will see coming up in John chapter 15. As Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples, he says these words in verses 4 through 7. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. It's that exact same word that Jesus Christ says here as he tells them to continue in his word, to abide in his word. It's the same word in John 15 when John tells his disciples, abide in me. John the Apostle would also speak in regard to this word in 1 John. 1 John is, by and large, uh, reflective of the Gospel of John. And in 1 John 2, verses 24 through 28, John writes this, Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, same word, 
ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The exact same word that Jesus Christ says here, found in John 15, is found in 1 John 2, 24-28. All of them, this concept of abiding or continuance. Now, I'm going to make a distinction here which I firmly believe, and I will defend it scripturally, but one which we must be careful not to attempt to fully define dogmatically. My statement is this. When Jesus is speaking to the believers in John 8 when he's speaking to his disciples in John 15, and when John is writing to those readers in 1 John 2, he is speaking to those who are already born-again believers on their way to heaven. This is why I say that. In John 8, verse 31, it specifically mentions that Jesus turned to those who had believed on him. And he commands them to do something, and that command is to continue or to abide in His Word, to be disciples. In John chapter 15, I read you verses 4 through 7. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus Christ tells the disciples, now you are clean through the Word which I have given unto you. He, he tells them that they are in fact already clean, and then He commands them to abide in Him, to continue in Him. He's teaching them of discipleship. And in 1 John 2, verses 22-28, through 28, the Apostle John states that he is speaking to his little children, those who are a part of the family of Christ. And so I believe that these textual indicators reveal to us that Jesus Christ and that John the Apostle are speaking, are writing to those who are already born again in Christ. So he's not warning them that if they don't continue, then they will lose their salvation. They, it is a... It is a compulsion or an exhortation unto godly living. Discipleship. John 8 is not a warning about losing salvation if they do not abide. It is an unconditional statement of expectation regarding fruit bearing in the life of believers. Likewise, Jesus' words here do not negate that which we have learned about recently and Tuesday night as well as this morning from Romans chapter 6 and from 1 Corinthians 3 about the possibility of carnal believers. A man is not an unbeliever just because he is a carnal Christian or he is ensnared in sin. A man does not lose his salvation when he becomes carnal or ensnared in sin. Rather, it seems to indicate in Romans chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians that there is such thing as a carnal believer. However, it is not normal, nor is it expected. And so this is where I desire to be careful. At Legacy Baptist Church, we do not dogmatically assert that every born-again believer will, at every moment and any given moment, be abiding in Christ. However, we do recognize that a true believer will not remain in a state of perpetual fruitlessness, carnality, and ensnarement to sin. 
Within that definition, we would recognize that one who does not and who has never abided in Christ was probably never in Christ to begin with. Now that line is not for us to judge, nor is it what Jesus Christ is emphasizing here, but I want to make it clear because people will read this passage or they'll read John 15 and they will begin to say that you can lose your salvation if you are not persevering in Christ. That's not what he's talking about here. That's not what Jesus Christ is saying here. He's not warning them against losing their salvation. He's warning them against fruitlessness, against a life where they are not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that brings us back to our first point this evening. Discipleship is a lifestyle, not just an action. The day you were saved, the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior was a wonderful day. On that day, you were saved from your sin. On that day, you were also saved from your sins. We saw that in Romans chapter 6. That sin shall not have dominion over us, for we are under grace, not under the law. So we were saved from the, the penalty of our sin nature, which was death and hell. We were placed on the path of eternal life, but we were also given the ability through the Holy Spirit to be victorious over sin in our lives and in our flesh. This is what Jesus Christ is saying in verse 32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The translation, make you free, is a good translation in our King James Bible of the Greek word. It encompasses the idea of being set at liberty. A lot of times when people quote this verse, they quote, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That does not, in fact, change the... Uh, it, it doesn't lessen the efficacy of the word behind it. Set free to make free. That is what Jesus Christ is saying here, is that the truth will free them. The Holy Spirit's indwelling saves us from the wrath of hell, but it is the truth of God's word and living in line with the truth of, truth of God's word that frees you from ensnarement to sin. As we abide in God's word, as we abide in Christ, as we continue in Him, walk with Him, as we talked about this morning, putting that into our life which we desire to get out of our life, if we put righteousness into our life, righteousness will be the fruit of our life. As we desire to have a life that is exhibiting Jesus Christ, that is showing the image of Christ in us, that is, is bringing forth sound doctrine in our lives, we need to know the truth. Because it is the truth that will make us free. Now the people's response in verse 33 they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Now, the question here that I have to ask is who's speaking? I don't believe this is the disciples, the believers that were, are speaking here. I believe it is the unbelieving group that is around them, and we'll see that in the context as we get a little bit farther in the context. In a moment, the, this group will be accused by Jesus of desiring to kill him. In a few more verses, we'll learn that the leaders of the Jews were part of this discussion. So I think we can be fairly confident here that, that it is not the believers that have asked him 
What do you mean we need to be free? We're of Abraham's seed. This is, this is the unbelievers. This is that group of Jews who have been dissenting to him the whole time. And so they say that as Abraham's seed, they've never been in bondage to any man, that their family line was not a line of slavery, but a free man. Jesus' remarks were directed to a group of believers, and yet now an, ungroup, uh, an unbelieving group of people have responded to his claims. Jesus makes it very clear to the contenders within the group that they are servants of sin, and they are constrained to obey their master, which is sin. To this end, they seek to kill him because they are driven by the compulsion of their sin nature. Their sin nature directs their thoughts and their actions and their thoughts and their actions have directed them toward desiring to reject the light and to put out the light to kill Jesus Christ. So, as we apply this first point, I'd like to talk about your freedom in Christ for a moment. We talked Tuesday, this past Tuesday, as well as the Tuesday before, about grace our obligation through grace and the dangers of abusing grace. We talked on Tuesday about how our freedom in Christ is not a license for us to pursue our own desires, but the freedom to live in obedience to God. And so I'd like you to consider with me an illustration, an illustration that will help us understand what it means to have freedom in truth, to have freedom in obedience to have freedom through submission to God. My wife and I have begun the habit of allowing our daughters when we go out to walk in stores, when we visit stores. We started this about a month ago. We would set them down because they can walk now and they would toddle through the store with us and we would just walk through the store and they'd hold our hands. Now, they, had, they did pretty well at first because it was a little intimidating, but as they got used to the situation, they became prone to wander, as little girls might be prone to wander. And so we began to expect of them that if they are going to walk, they are required to hold mommy or daddy's hand. And one time I was pulling the, the girls out of the car at Menards, and I don't know how much they understand and how much they don't. I feel as though they probably understand more than I give them credit. But I looked at Alethea and I said, Alethea, here's how this works. I am going to give you the privilege and the freedom to walk. But with that freedom, you must hold my hand. If you refuse to play by my rules, you will lose your freedom to walk. And I explained this whole thing to her in quite, de in quite detailed uh, um, account here. I said, you will walk by my side. You will hold my hand. You will not pull away from my hand. You will not go in the direction that I'm not going. If I'm going in a direction, you'll go with me. You will hold my hand. If you let go of my hand, I'm going to grab it again. If you let hold a second time, you don't get to walk anymore. You lose that privilege. If you obey, then I will let you have the freedom to walk around. Your privilege of walking depends upon your obedience to me. Have you ever heard those words from dad or from mom before? That your freedom is dependent upon your obedience? I believe any parent in this room understands that concept. The freedom and privileges that parents give to their children is dependent upon the degree to which they have shown themselves able to operate within the bounds of their parents' restrictions upon them. If I, as a parent, trust my children to do what is right, then my children will have more freedom 
because they have shown themselves capable of living within the bounds of the freedom that I have given to them. I'm not interested in locking my children in their room and never letting them go anywhere, but I am certainly interested when I let them leave the room of them doing things in the manner that I have given them, within the framework that I have given them to do things. If you have shown yourself consistently disobedient, you should not expect a great deal of freedom. If you have shown yourself consistently obedient, you can expect more freedom. You know, it's much the same way with our freedom in Christ. Our freedom in Christ is found not so much in our, not at all, in our ability to pursue our own lusts and desires, but to live our lives within the framework of God's revealed will for us. And we will find, as we have sung oftentimes in the, in the song Trust and Obey, that the more you obey, the more you recognize your freedom to operate in Christ. And so you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not simply about the day you were saved. It is not a new day in Christ, is it? We never talk about our new day in Christ. We talk about our new life in Christ. Because it's not just about a day. It's not just about one day of obedience. It is about a life of obedience. It's about discipleship. Discipleship is a lifestyle not just an action. Look secondly with me, verses 41 through 51. Discipleship is about listening, not just hearing. Discipleship is about listening, not just hearing. Jesus and the dissenters continue their back and forth discussion. The Jews have been resting on their heritage to prove their obedience to God. They've been resting on their religion. They've been resting on their traditions. They've been resting on their heritage. They've been resting on all of these things to prove that they have obeyed God because they are physical children of Abraham, they represent Abraham. Now, Jesus has said the opposite, that though they may be able to trace their lineage back to Abraham, they had rejected the spiritual legacy which Abraham put in place long ago. Though they were the lineage of Abraham, they had rejected the obedience that Abraham had displayed in his life. Now, Jesus rather says that they have a different spiritual father. That their spiritual father is not the father of Abraham and that their spiritual father certainly isn't Abraham himself. Their spiritual father, he will go on to say in verse 44, is the devil. Now the Jews, of course, didn't listen. They say in verse 41, we uh, be not of fornication. We have one father, even God. The Jews' reply is this. If God had been their father... Oh, excuse me, Jesus' reply, the Jews reply that they have one Father, even God. Jesus' reply to them, if God had been their Father, then they would have accepted God's Word. If they had accepted God's Word, then they would have accepted God's Messenger. If they had accepted God's Messenger, then certainly they would have accepted Jesus Christ, who was God's Messenger. So Jesus says, there's no way that God could be your Father. There's no way that you can trace your spiritual lineage back to God your legacy back to Abraham's faith because you don't believe the words of God. If you had believed the words of God, you would have believed me. So Jesus asks in verse 43, why do ye not understand my speech? And then he says, even because ye cannot hear my word. There is no man that could prove any sin in Jesus' life. 
There was no man that could refute the proofs of Jesus' words. Yet they will not believe. And why won't they believe? Because they were not listening. They were hearing the words that came out of Jesus' mouth, but they were not hearing the message behind those words. They weren't listening. But a mark of true discipleship is found in verse 47. You can look at it with me. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, he tells them, because ye are not of God. A disciple of Jesus Christ, discipleship is a lifestyle, not just an action, but a disciple of Jesus Christ hears the words of God, but also listens and obeys the words of God. Discipleship is about a lifestyle of hearing, listening, and obedience. This past Friday, I was in a school district meeting for Buffalo Hanover Montrose Schools, a, a parent community representative meeting that I have been doing now for the last two years. And they were talking this past Friday about physical education in our school systems. They gave statistics and they showed that nationwide, there's not one state in the union now that has an obese, a child obesity rate lower than 20%. Child obesity rate is above 20% in every single state in the union. And there's no signs of that reversing anytime soon. Now, children eat junk food, they watch TV, they play video games, and their lack of activity causes them to become fat. As we talked, the contrast that was made, we had three, three physical education teachers come and give a presentation. And they, they, they gave a contrast. And the contrast was between doing healthy things and living a healthy lifestyle. They said, it's easy enough to ask kids to do healthy things, but then they go home and they sit in front of their TVs and they eat their junk food and it's all for naught. What they are trying to do is encourage children to learn how to live a healthy lifestyle, to log the kinds of food that they eat, to recognize what those foods do to their bodies, to recognize how exercise can help them, not just physically, but mentally, all of these sorts of things. And as we talked about these things, now I always get a little frustrated because I keep saying, get the parents involved. It's the parents' responsibility. Make the parents see that this is their job. It's not the job of our teachers to try and make our children thin. It's the job of our teachers to put stuff into their minds. But uh, that's beside the point. The point was this, and we talked about it just a little bit this morning. If you want to remain healthy, it must become a lifestyle, not simply an action. Regular exercise and healthy eating must become the norm in one's life if one is to be successful at being physically fit and healthy. We talked about it this morning. It's the same way in our spiritual lives. Intermittent godliness is not enough to make healthy Christians. Spirituality must become a lifestyle. And this is the essence of what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the essence of discipleship. It is living a biblical lifestyle, not just doing biblical things on the weekend. It's about being a Christian Sunday through Saturday, not just being a Christian on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and maybe Tuesday night if you're up for it. It's continuing in the Word of God and not just doing them sometimes. It is listening to the Word of God, not just hearing and knowing the Bible. 
Discipleship is about a lifestyle, not just an action. Discipleship is about listening, not just hearing. Third and finally this evening, discipleship is about God, not about you. Discipleship is about God, not about you. Verses 52 through 59 as we round out the end of John chapter 8. The Jews now are accusing Jesus of having a devil, of being demon-possessed, of being crazy. Jesus just told them that if they obey his words, they shall never see death. But, the Jews reason, Abraham and the prophets, now we know that Abraham and the prophets obeyed the words of God, and they died. How is it that if they obey the words of Jesus, they will never die? Well, we know that Jesus was speaking on a spiritual plane here, something which had eluded these unbelievers. But they asked Jesus in verse 53, Art thou greater than our father Abraham and the prophets? Are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets? You're telling us that you can do something for us that Abraham and the prophets couldn't do. Are you telling us that you're greater than them? Jesus is going to give them an answer in a moment, but first, he qualifies his answer. In verses 54 and 55, Jesus reminds them that it is not his goal to honor himself. He did not come to place himself on a pedestal. He came to do the will of the Father and to allow the Father to honor him. Look at verse 54. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not... I shall be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his sayings. Wow. So Jesus Christ is saying here, look, before I answer your question, you just asked me, are you greater than Abraham and the prophets? Well, that, that's a loaded question. Jesus Christ is going to answer it honestly, but he says, let me just qualify my statements here. I'm not here to honor myself. I am not here to lift myself up. I am here and I am allowing God the Father to honor me. I am allowing God the Father to give me the honor that is due. God is my Father and you say you worship God, but you don't hear Him. If you heard Him, you would understand what I'm about to say. But I'm going to tell you something because I cannot lie. You're not going to like it, but you need to hear it. And then he answers their question in verses 56 through 58. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Jesus' day would most naturally be interpreted here to mean the time of Jesus' ministry. Yet it seems that the people interpreted it to mean that Abraham had seen Jesus himself. What exactly Jesus was saying here? Was Jesus saying that Abraham had seen Jesus? Or was he saying that he had seen the day approaching when Jesus Christ would be upon this earth in his incarnate form? I, I don't know. There have been good men on both sides of that. I don't know if it necessarily matters. Because both are true. We know that Abraham did encounter the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity in the plains of Mamre. Remember the Lord and, and the two angels came and ate with Abraham before those two angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham specifically mentions that he was speaking to the Lord. And we recognize in the Old Testament when the Lord comes in a physical form that we are dealing with the pre-incarnate Son of God. And so Abraham did in fact see the Christ in his pre-incarnate form. But Abraham also saw the day by faith when Jesus Christ would walk upon the earth, would minister and would 
take upon himself the sins of mankind. So we're not exactly sure which one, I'm not exactly sure, maybe you are, I'm not exactly sure which one Jesus Christ is referencing here. But notice what they said. The Jews said unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Have you seen Abraham? Have you met Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about? And this is where Jesus says it. He replies, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. This is extremely significant. If you ever have anyone tell you, well, Jesus never said he was God, John 8, 58 is the verse to go to. Jesus Christ just said here, before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember way back in Exodus 3 when Moses was introduced to God in the, in the burning bush? And Moses came before this burning bush and God said to him, take off thy shoes for the ground upon which you're standing is holy ground. And God says, I'm going to send you, Moses, to the nation of Israel and you are going to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt. And Moses said, who should I tell them sent me? Who, who should I, what, what God should I tell them sent me? And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, tell them that the I am sent you. I am that I am. The great I am sent you. God describing his, his existence there, his eternal existence. And he described himself as the I am. This was the holy name, covenant name for God in the nation of Israel. Now Jesus Christ here tells these Jews and Pharisees, the leaders in Israel, before Abraham was, I am. Ego eimi, it is in the Greek. As emphatic as you can get, I am. He's saying he's Jehovah God. He's saying he is the God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He's saying he is the God that delivered them at the Red Sea. He's saying he is the God that provided for them man in the wilderness. He's saying he is the God that appeared to them in the cloudy pillar. He's saying he is the God that dwelt above the mercy seat in the tabernacle. He's saying, I am Jehovah God. Now, to the unbelieving Jews, this was the absolute epitome of blasphemy. Jesus Christ just said, I am, in fact, Jehovah God. They asked him, are you greater than Abraham and the prophets? Well, yes, in fact, he is greater than Abraham and the prophets. He is the great I am. He is Jehovah himself. And yet, as Jesus speaks, this contention brings us to a place where we recognize something very important about discipleship. Jesus told them, that he was not upon this earth to honor himself, but that God the Father would honor him. Well, the disciples are not above their master. You and I are not above our master, our Lord, Jesus Christ. If Jesus' life upon this earth was not meant to be anything more than a reflection of the Father's message and an endeavor for the Father's glory, it is no less the disciples' charge to do the same. You and I are placed upon this earth as disciples, not so that people can see us as godly people, but so that people can see the reflection of God the Father's message and God the Father's glory in us. 
We are the light of the world, but we are not the source of the light. We are the salt of the earth, but we are not the source of the savor. Because that's God. And we are here as a reflection of God to the world. As we close, let me ask you a question. Have you come to the point in your life where you are placing into your life the framework of discipleship? Is your obedience to God contingent upon the circumstances that you find yourself in? You'll be obedient to God as long as you're around people that are, or you'll, you'll, you'll talk godly or act godly or think godly as long as your mindset is in the framework of being godly? Or have you built into your very lifestyle the determinations of obedience and patient, sincere godliness? Is it a lifestyle for you? Is your Christian life your life? Or is it only a part of your life? Are you just a hearer? Or are you a listener and a doer? Is what you do an attempt at bringing attention to yourself, pleasure to yourself, or is it an attempt to reflect God the Father to the world around you? Three lessons that we've learned today that will help us be disciples, be what God has called us to be, as we recognize that number one, discipleship is a lifestyle, not just an action. Number two, discipleship is about listening, not just hearing. And number three, discipleship is about God, not about you. Let's pray.